So now we uh, come into our time of scripture reading. Uh, so if you've been with us over the last few weeks, we are looking, uh, we're spending a few weeks just looking at the book of Esther. Uh, next week, I'm not going to be here. Uh, we have a, a guest preacher, uh, David Guineau. He's a counselor with the Peacemaker Counseling Center that, uh, who also meets right next door in the third place. And he's also a, a Presbyterian minister. Uh, you have benefited from him, or perhaps you've been cursed by him, because he was part of the interviewing committee that hired me to be here. So David's preaching for you next week. Um, and so he's uh, going to be taking up the idea of uh, trusting a hidden God coming from Esther. And uh, so, but today we're going to be looking at Esther chapter uh, 4 and also chapter uh Six as well, and th this is really uh, trying both introducing um, Esther and as, and as the as the heroine of the story, as we learn what, a few things about what it means to follow uh, Jesus, and so. This is Esther 4. Uh, we're going to begin with Esther 4 verses 1 through 16, and then we're jumping to. Um, Esther 6, verse 14, and then reading into chapter 7. So we have a lot of scripture to read, so, and this is a wonderful thing. So let's just dive into God's word at this time, and then we'll con uh, consider uh, God's word for our life. So here is God's word, Esther 4, verse 1. If you have a blue Bible, it's page 412, or you can follow along on these walls. When Mordecai learned that all... All that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth. And ashes. When Esther's young woman and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. When Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what, was, what this was and why it was, Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in the front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the, the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to, to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. 
Then Esther told them to, re- to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews in suit found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat and or drink for three days, day or night. I and my young woman will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Then jumping to Esther 6, verse 14 into chapter 7. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to her, said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And the word left the mouth of the king, and they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs and the attendants of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word, and as we look at your word now, may your spirit be at work in our life that we would know what it means to, to follow you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. One question that I often hear, and, I, and this is a question you often hear as well, because it, you're the one asking it in one shape or, or another, but the question that I hear a lot as a pastor is, what's the point in my life? What's, what's my life's purpose? Why am I here? The, the, this is a big question. It's one of those massive existential questions that we ask, that we need to have answered in our life to, be, to have a sense of contentment in, in our life. And because this is a question that every single one of us wants to know. And we ask this question in a season of transition. Perhaps you're asking this question now. You're, about, you're graduating from college and you're like, what am I going to do next? That's a variation of this question. What's the point to my life? What am I going to do next? Perhaps this is a, you're in a season of frustration with your job. And so you're even wondering uh, about ha- taking up a new job. And you're like, but is this what God is calling me to do? Perhaps you're thinking about moving or something else. Uh, these are, this is a question every single one of us asks again and again, over and over again in our life. What is my purpose? What, what is 
the point of my life. And as we look at this story, Mordecai sees Esther, Esther's life with a being full of divine purpose. He's, he looks at Esther in her ordinary life, and we've looked at Esther for the past few weeks, and we know that she has been really a pawn. She's been very passive, being moved around from place to place. Like she, she's had no control of her own. And she's like, hey, you know what? Perhaps this is why God has you in the palace for such a time as this. Mordecai looks at Esther's ordinary life, and her ordinary life is full of extraordinary promise and extraordinary purpose. In fact, her life, even though very ordinary, is rather extraordinary because God is working in and through her. And this is the idea, this is what I want to take up today. I want to take up this, this idea, and this is a, a, a topic for the, the title for today's sermon is that it is ordinary lives, extraordinary moments. Ordinary lives, extraordinary moments. And this taking up this entire idea of looking at our lives through, with a, through, a, through a filter of divine purpose where we are looking at our lives, and we're not asking the question, what's the purpose of my life? We're asking, what is God's purpose for me in my life in this very moment? That's what we're looking at for today. And uh, a good outline, uh, the outline that I'm using, perhaps it's a bad outline, but the outline for us today is just ABC. Um, ABC? So A, awakening, B, belonging, C, the cost. Awakening, belonging, and the cost. And uh, this, and if you've been with us for the past few weeks, I've been rather critical of the two heroes of the story, Mordecai and Esther. And today we're seeing why they're heroes. That why these uh, compromised Jews are the, the heroes of the story. And, uh, and the, first, the, the first reason why Mordecai and Esther are heroes of the story is that they, are, they have experienced an awakening. And this is our first point, awakening. We see both Mordecai and Esther have a change of heart. Like, going back in, previously in our story, Mordecai has told Esther everything that she's, she's supposed to do. Esther changes that, and we'll see that in a moment. But one of the things that Mordecai told her is like, don't tell, one of the things Mordecai told her was this, don't tell anyone that you're a Jew. So she kept her mouth shut. And we see that she was quite successful in this, that not that neither Haman nor the king knew that she was a Jew. When, like we see that in, in Esther 7, they're shocked that she's a Jew. She was quite successful in keeping her ethnicity to herself. And even Mordecai was doing the same thing. And we saw that last week, that people didn't know he was a Jew until he told them. But they had, both of them, have an awakening. That for, for Mordecai, very specifically, the, the circumstance that led to his awakening was the fact that Haman arose to be the prime minister of Persia. He had that radical, that quick ascension to power. Perhaps it was more than that. Perhaps he realizes that pursuing worldly power is futile. Perhaps he didn't really like Haman. Perhaps it was his uh, affinity and love for his Jewish heritage. Uh, we don't know any more than that. All we know is that coincidentally, I'm putting quotes around that word intentionally, coincidentally, Mordecai has an awakening that uh, happened at the same time that Haman uh, comes to power. 
And we see this is that God is doing something in his life, even though God is never mentioned in, in his life. But we know that, Mor- that Mordecai has an awakening in his life because he is demonstrating such a thing. You look at his life, you're saying, that Mordecai is not who I knew five years ago. He's not the same guy I knew two years ago. He has an awakening. So how, how do we know he has an awakening? What are the signs of his awakening? We'll just dive in and look at verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. Mordecai learned all that had been done. What's he do? He takes his clothes, he rips them, and he, he puts on sackcloth. He puts on burlap. I'm not sure if you know this, but burlap is meant to make you uncomfortable. It's meant to make you itch and scratch, and you're always in a state of discomfort. And then he not only puts on sackcloth, he, puts, he goes over to the fireplace. He takes ashes and puts them on his forehead. Why would you do such a thing? So, and then he goes out into the midst of the city, and he, and he cries out with a loud and bitter cry. He is publicly wailing. And so he is doing things that are actually outside his character that we have seen up to this point. But why in the world would he do this? Why in the world would you do this? Well, the, the author's language is very similar to the language that the prophet Joel uses. And this is the language that we read in the call to confession. Here's a Joel 2. Return to God with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Here's Mordecai. He's rending his garments. He's putting on sackcloth. He's fasting. He's weeping. He's mourning. So throughout Scripture, the practice of fasting, the practice of mourning, all of these things almost always include prayer. So at this point, here's here's a very helpful assumption that we can make. It's an assumption because Scripture never says Mordecai is praying. We are assuming he's praying here as well. We assume the rest of the Jewish community is also praying at this time. And like one commentator says this, that, that, that is, it's actually when Mordecai talks about what's going on later on, and we'll see this in a few moments, but when he talks about what's going on, he seems to be, He's having a hard time speaking about his life without talking about God. He's like, perhaps this, for such a time as this, you have, you have arose to this point of power. Perhaps. But like, my point is, is that uh, when we see fasting, mourning, and all these things going on, almost always there's praying, praying going on. And so it's, it's a reasonable assumption that he, Mordecai is, is praying at this point. But all the even, but like... Even though that detail is not given, all these other details in line with Joel 2 show and demonstrate one's repentance. Mordecai is publicly repenting. He's had an awakening and he's turning from his life. He's turning from everything else that has gone up to that. He's renouncing something. And so a few weeks ago, uh, we kicked off this entire season of Lent and, uh, with uh, Ash Wednesday. And if you were here with us, uh, we had about 50 people um, on Ash Wednesday. But uh, it, was, it was interesting because on Ash Wednesday, you, like, I'm, if, I'm, you know this by just looking around. Like you're walking around town, perhaps you're in class, perhaps you're at work. And someone there is with you in, on Ash Wednesday and there's some ashes on their foreheads. 
It's, and like when we had our Ash Wednesday service, um, I pointed out how odd that was because probably even this morning, uh, just to think about it even this today, it would be odd because you took some time today to take a shower, to brush your teeth, put on some deodorant, do your hair. I know that because I'm looking at you. Like to even put on some makeup. But why in the world would you put, take ashes and just put them on your forehead? Why would you intentionally get messy like that? And the author, Lauren Winner, she's an amazing scholar of Christianity in America. She wrote this book, Girl Meets God, and she writes about ashes. Uh, she, she converted from conservative Judaism to Christianity, and she writes this about ashes that suddenly, and she, she's a student at Columbia at this time, suddenly her private faith, my private faith, had a public face. Interesting, my private faith had a public face. Late one Ash Wednesday night, I run out to the local grocer to get a few things. And it's Ash Wednesday. And I see an acquaintance. This acquaintance doesn't know me that well, but this acquaintance kindly said to me, you know, you have a smudge on your forehead. There, let me help you wipe it off. And then she fished for a tissue out of her purse to help wipe it off. And Lauren says to her, well, actually, it's supposed to be there. Why in the world would you put ashes on your forehead? Why in the world would Mordecai do this? Well, he is showing repentance. He wants to be known as a Jew. That's surprising because he said, don't tell anyone you're a Jew. Don't let anyone know you are a Jew because then people will look at you and despise you because you are a part of this despised ethnic minority. And so Mordecai's actions are dramatic. They're showing a complete change in his life. He's no longer content to keep his faith private. He's no longer content to keep his heritage and his ethnicity secret, where it's off in the corner, hidden from everyone else. As, to use the words of Lauren Winter, uh, her pr private faith has a public face. That's what's going on for Mordecai. And he is experiencing an awakening and so Mordecai's actions today would look different, but perhaps they could be subtle, but they would all, perhaps they would also be dramatic and drastic. And I have two illustrations to help us understand what Mordecai's actions would look like in our own daily lives today. Uh, so here's one example, and uh, these, are, these are actually both examples I'm going to share with you are examples that I got this past week in conversations from some pastor friends, and they, they were very deeply encouraging to me. So here's one example of dramatic, drastic repentance. My friend said that one time he had a man come to his church office on a Sunday morning full with a suitcase full of adult DVDs. And he says, hey, will you throw these away for me? And my friend says, no, I'll help you throw them away. So they go out to the dumpster out back and they throw out at least 100 of these DVDs. And he gives them back the suitcase and uh, he goes back to, to his everyday life. But a few years later... My friend had the joy of baptizing him when he professed faith in Jesus Christ. Right there is a dramatic reversal where he's like, I'm changing my life. There's this complete change that began then and there. And that's a dramatic change. And it's going to be noticeable to everyone around you. But it also can be subtle. And this is using a similar um, situation. 
One day a couple comes into an, a different pastor friend's office, and this couple uh, and it served as the morality police in their, in their church, uh, getting on their own children, saying this is, this is how you do things, this is not how you do things. They even did that within, with children and other families in, in the church as well. They're always scrutinizing things, nitpicking things, and it turns out that what was going on is that they're looking at inappropriate things on the family computer. And so his, what, what happens is that his wife takes a hammer, breaks the computer, and then throws it into the swimming pool. Swimming pool, that's really drastic right there. And uh, if you're familiar with these types of stories, that has, that's actually not uncommon. That is actually very normal. That, not very normal, but that can happen when, uh, when, uh, when people are demonstrating they're making changes. But what she was doing in that moment is that she's trying to force repentance, to force change on her husband. And my friend, my pastor, like in a series of conversations, key words here is a series of conversations, is talking with them. And he has, he's affirming, yeah, he is betraying you. He is hurting you. He's doing a lot, of, a lot of hurt. And your hurt is legitimate. And I want you to consider something as well. What's your part in this as well? Because God is, wants to do something in your life here. And she let, leaves the office in rain, enraged, and they leave the church shortly thereafter. Then seven years later, seven years later, my, a lot of time passes. My friend is walking through Home Depot, and she's working there as a manager, and she comes up to him. She sees him. She runs up to him, and she says to him, I owe you an apology because you're right. I'm now a manager here, and uh, many people in my li life right now have a lot of sexual brokenness. And I once judged and condemned, condemned them. But God is, has been using me to love people that I was once so judgmental of. And, and the reality is, I owe you an apology because I just took out all my denial and, and rage on you. And so will you forgive me? And so I'm using the language of subtle and dramatic here to demonstrate that, like, th this is what our repentance should look like. Sometimes repentance in our life should be dramatic, where we can look at someone and say, wow, their life has completely changed. And like, just like how Mordecai is like, you don't recognize him from the Mordecai you read about in Esther 2. You don't recognize him at all. It's been that dramatic. But sometimes it can be subtle, where it's like, wait, where did that, it's subtle. It, something happened, but it happened over time. And that's what happened with Esther. It was subtle. But repentance, no matter how dramatic or how subtle it is, is always drastic because in repentance, you are turning from lies to truth. You're turning from death to life. You're turning from slavery to freedom. And that is what repentance is. And when we are awoken to the sinner in our life, when we experience this awakening, our faith is going to be renewed, perhaps, or you don't, be, you don't have faith for the very first time. This is what every single one of us needs to know. Whenever we experience this awakening, that's just the first decision, to turn from our sin and to trust in Jesus Christ. It's the first decision. Because following Jesus Christ is a lifestyle of decisions. It is a lifestyle of repentance that is made every moment of every day. We see this in Mordecai's life. We see this in Esther's life. They make the decision to follow God but they also make the decision to locate their identity in God's people. In other words, they find belonging. This is our second point. They find belonging with God's people. And this is the B of ABC, belonging. And so Esther, she apparently doesn't know that there is a planned genocide against her people. 
She doesn't know. So she's like, what's bothering Mordecai? So right there, even if she knows, this is, being, this is a cynical reading right now, even if she knows that she, what's bothering Mordecai, she's like, she's surprised. Why, she, like, why would this be bother? Why would this bother you? So that's a cynical reading, but the, she doesn't know about it. Uh, we see this by some things that Mordecai does. And so Esther learns about this upcoming planned genocide. Mordecai tells her to go against her own counsel, his own counsel. He says, stop listening to me. Like, you know what? He doesn't say stop listening to me. He's like, you know that advice of hiding your Jewish identity? Let people know you're a Jew and go to the, the king to rescue us. So instead of hiding her Jewish heritage, she, he's telling her, stand up for her heritage. He tells her to use her power and her privilege for the sake of her people. And his words in 4, verses 12, 13 and 14, capture the darkness of this moment. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, re relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And so Mordecai is telling Esther that... There are only two outcomes for her at this point. The first outcome is that she's going to die with her people. Do you think that um, any of the eunuchs know she's a Jew? Do you th or perhaps a, a rival woman in the harem knows she's a Jew. And so the, her rival would think, hey, you know what? This would be the opportunity for me to become queen. I don't, I don't kill Esther. So like, that's one thing that, that Mordecai realizes. Do you think you're going to escape? That's the first thing. The second thing is that if Esther does nothing, then her father's house is going to perish. Esther will be cut off from her people, from God's family. And Esther, if you remember, she's an orphan. Her parents died. Mordecai is her adopted father. He, he's her cousin, but he raised her. He is her adopted father. And so Mordecai is pointing out that like every one of your friends, your family, your relatives are going to die. If you don't, you just say something. And so that's what Mordecai is pointing out to her. And, and so, in other words, no, no family, Esther would have no family, no friends, no loved ones if she doesn't say something. And so Esther has a decision to make. Is she going to use her power and her privilege to stand up for her people? Is she going to risk life and limb for her people? Well, we, we know because we see, that we, we know the end of the story because we also read it. The answer is yes. She risks life and limb. And, but what we see here is that throughout the entirety of Scripture, that once you are a child of God, you're also a part of his family. You are not an orphan, in other words. That if you know God through Jesus Christ, you're not an orphan. You have brothers. You have sisters. You are a child of God. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he completely redefines your relationships. We see this in the Gospels. When Jesus is teaching one time, Jesus is teaching. Happens a lot, but he's teaching. But there's this very one specific instance that his mother and his brothers come to hear him teach. And they're expecting that Jesus to give them like the front row seats over here. And, but so they come and they, they, the crowd's packed and they say, hey, tell Jesus where his mom his brothers are here. And they get word back from Jesus. And the word's this, that uh, the ones who obey the word of my father, the will of my father, those are my family. 
And so in other words, mom, mom and brothers are still in the back row. They don't get the, the privileged seats. The point is, is that Jesus redefines our relationships. Jesus bring, invites us into a new family, and this is a gift. This is a gift that I have personally experienced firsthand because some of you know that my dad's an orphan. His birth father ran away when he was only three days old, and when my dad married my mom, he said, I don't have a family. I don't have a family, but I have brothers, I have sisters, and the church. And this can actually be rather unpopular today because it's easy to look. I jumped in my notes there, back up. So he says to my mom, I may not have a family, but I have brothers and sisters in, my, in the church. And so because of that one statement, I grew up having adopted aunts and ad adop adopted aunts, adopted uncles, and adopted grandparents. It was great. So even though we moved from Iowa to Western PA, there at my sister's graduation was my adopted grandparents. When I got married, there was, were my adopted grandparents. When my church had, that I was serving at Pittsburgh, went from church plant to legit church, they were there. And I'm like, I'm greeting. They're walking on the sidewalk. I'm like, you live 700 100 miles away. What are you doing here? Like, we wanted to surprise you. Like, awesome adopted grandparents. See, the point that I'm making is that God is making us into a new family. God takes us out of the, our broken lives, our broken families, our broken relationships, and he's making for us a new family that transcends geography, time, and everything else. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we must make the decision to find belonging with his people, to find belonging with his family, to find belonging with the church. And this can be rather unpopular today because it's easy for us to look at the church and say, the church is so judgmental, the church is, is full of hypocrites, the church is responsible for injustice and pain in the world. It's easy to, those, to, to look at the church and say those things. And I know many of us here say, have said the same thing because it's true. There is a lot of pain and hypocrisy the reality, though, is that Jesus gave his life for you and for one another. Jesus gave his life for the church, and he calls us to love one another in the same way. He calls us to pick up the cross and to follow him and to love one another, looking to him as our example, so that where we are willing to love and even to die for each other. And so the reality is, is that we have more in common with God's people, the church, than we do with those who vote the same way as we do in, the, the, in political parties and political races. We have more in common with other Christians, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of language, regardless of education, regardless of social class. We have more in common with God's family than anyone else in the world. And this means that you and I are meant to find our identity as one of God's children. We are meant to find our identity within God's family. And if, we, and if you're going to do that, if you're going to take risks, there is a cost to being a part of God's family as, because you're opening yourself up to risk. Following Jesus means embracing a lifetime of risk. And this is our third point as cost or risk. C is good. Let's go with cost. Cost. Esther makes the decision to identify with her people. She said, but, and we see this beautiful, audacious statement. 
there's, there's hope here too. She says, if I perish, I perish. The, the hope is the key word if. If. I might not perish, but if I do, I perish. Like she risks and she risks everything as she seeks to find belonging with her people and following God. She knows the, the risk here. And the reason why she knows the risk is that she's been married to Ahasuerus for five years now. So actually, if you're, if you're a timeline type of person, we're here in Esther 4. We're actually eight years into, eight years into the events of the book of Esther. There's two more years left. But we're eight years into this. And she has not been invited to see Ahasuerus now for 30 days. She has seen him never make a decision on his own because, and he, we've seen the same thing. Whenever he, he, like when he had troubles with Vashti, he went to Memekin. And Memekin, it was Memekin's idea to banish her. It was uh, someone else's idea to have this like uh, bachelorette contest with the, the Persian dictator as well. And it's not even his idea to, to have genocide. It's Haman's idea. So Esther, in fact, we saw this last week, it wasn't even his idea on how to, Mordecai, to honor Mordecai. It was Haman's idea. The king has never made a decision on his own. And so she's go, she knows that she not only, she has to convince him, but she also has to convince other advisors. And so how in the world would she, she do this? She knows that uh, because her husband has never invited her, her she, because her husband has not invited her to visit him in 30 days, he, she knows he's getting bored with her. He's getting tired with her. And so if she goes before him without being summoned, then she may die. The, her only hope is if the king lowers the scepter to, to her. And then she also has to persuade him. So there's many obstacles that Esther has to deal with. But at now, when Esther says, if I perish, I perish, at this very moment, she's no longer passive. It's really fun to notice this, but read the, read, read the entire book of Esther in one sitting. This is the moment when Esther is no longer passive. She embraces her power. She embraces her standing. She embraces her authority, and she is always, she's the one taking action now. In fact, Mordecai is the one who becomes passive. It's quite interesting, but it's a little fun tidbit of if you're if you want to read the whole book that way and so she, what esther does she also says she commands mordecai she says you know what how gather all the jews and Jews, so have them pray for me for three days three nights have them pray for me have them fast for me um and so they embrace this fast no food no drink and she even says i'm going to do the same thing my and my assistants we're going to do the same thing so they embark on this, this fast. And so three days later, she goes before the king. And she goes before the king knowing that her life is on the line. That the Esther, Esther does not go to the king in pride. She does not go to him in power. But she does go to him in confidence. She's risking life and limb. But she goes to the king in weakness. She's tired. She's thirsty. She's hungry. Have you ever fasted? Like, have you ever fasted, whether it be for a diet, for health, perhaps uh, for spiritual reasons, but she goes on this fast. And like, if you have ever gone on for a fast, you can handle it for 12 hours, 24 hours, okay. But after those first 24 hours, then you're like, you're feeling tired. And here she is three days later. Just imagine how tired she feels. And she goes to the king and she's embodying vulnerability. She, she has left the safety of her home and is going to the king, and she's left that safety. She's tired. She's hungry. She is embodying vulnerability, and she reminds us of Jesus. 
Jesus, like Esther, used his power and his privilege for the sake of others. See, Jesus, God the Son, used his privilege and his status as the Son of God to rescue you. Following Jesus means taking risks. Following Jesus means uh, counting the cost and risking. And sometimes following Jesus is going to risk your life. You're going to risk life and limb at times as you follow Jesus, just like Esther did. But the reality is we don't live in Persia. We're not a despised ethnic group. There's 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 a big disconnect between Esther's situation and our situation because we have religious freedom. We have a, a, a sense of uh, pr- legal protection as well. And so it's far more likely that as you use your power and your privilege, as you're following Jesus Christ, you're going to lose your reputation. You're going to be, perhaps become despised. Perhaps you're going, to, you're going to risk your job. You're not going to risk life and limb. So what's this look like when you risk privilege, when you risk power, when you risk your position. Well, here's one example. This is um, an example I, ha- I got from Andy Crouch's book, uh, Strong and Weak, Embracing a Life of Love, Risk, and True Flourishing. He tells the story of the Bolivian uh, church. And, and the Bolivian church uh, has long relied, even up until, like, we'll say 2014, but the Bolivian church has largely relied on missionaries from America. Because missionaries from America, they, they don't just bring like theological education. They don't just know how to preach, but they also bring money. They bring short-term mission trips. They bring assistance and humanitarian aid. They bring a lot of things. And so Crouch tells the story of this one guy, Drew Jennings Grisham. He's a 20-something. He just graduated from Wheaton College. He, he's there serving um, the as a missionary, and he realizes something. He's realizing that he and the other missionaries are riding around in white SUV cars with air conditioning. Other people are riding bicycles. He's realizing that he's staying in a hotel when other people are essentially living in a shed. That, in fact, he is able to have good food, but the people that he is serving are eating rice full of maggots. And he decided not to enjoy these things. He decided not to enjoy these things that his standing, his position gave him. And so Jennings Grisham like, was in this meeting with other American missionaries as they're meeting with the Bolivian church. And they're, going, they're meeting around a massive table, just like you would expect in a corporate boardroom. And at one point, they're, they're having a conversation, and, and Jennings Grisham gets up. He, he closes his laptop and says to all the other uh, missionaries, and says, hey, you know what? Let's go get dinner. Let's leave the room. Let's go get lunch. And you guys make the decision. When we come back, we can just help out, figure out all the random other details. You guys talk this over and make a decision. And because of that one decision, because Jennings Grisham made, used his power, used his position, used his privilege and authority to empower others, the Bolivian church was born that day. For the first time in history, there was no there, before that moment, there was no indigenous-led Bolivian church that was organized and led by Bolivians. But here is a man who uses authority and privilege and power to empower people for the sake of others. That's an example of what it looks like for us as followers of Jesus Christ. We may not risk life and limb. What we actually risk is giving away our power, giving away our privilege, giving away our, our position for the sake of others. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ did for you. That Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humiliated himself. That Jesus was born, 
that Jesus suffered the miseries of life. He suffered the miseries of sin. He died. The most innocent man in the world was crucified. As we, had, as we read in our prayers of confession, we have killed him. Oh God, what have we have done? We have killed him. Jesus did that willingly so that he can have life with you. And so friends, the message of Esther as we see this here is that like no one is beyond rescue. No one's beyond redemption. The entire question of Esther is, will God rescue us even when we are being faithless? The answer is yes. God rescues his people because he is loving and patient and kind and he has made a promise to rescue his people. That is the wonderful message of Esther. And as we follow him, that means we also must take risks. We must count the cost. We must take risks. We need to find belonging with his people as we are awakened to the sin in our lives and as we are also awakened to his love for us as well. That is the way of Jesus. So the question of Esther is, are you too willing to take the risks as well? Let's pray.